welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Trevor McNulty continues our series on Lessons from Life Stories, looking at the life of Absalom. And now, here's Trevor. Morning, everyone. Um, sometimes you get spared and you don't even know it. And this morning is one of those times because you got spared listening to me for apparently 53 minutes because of technology failures. And yesterday I pre-recorded this message and uh, the technology failed me very badly. And uh, when I looked at the time that it would have been, the, the sermon was 53 minutes. I promise it won't be that long this morning. But if I'm speaking like I'm the Energizer buddy, you know why. It is very hard to cut out uh, 22 minutes of a sermon. Um, but this morning we are looking at David. And um, you say, well, no, wait, we're supposed to be talking about Absalom this morning. Well, no, David's sin had major effects on Absalom. So I never title my sermons. But this uh, this morning... I did title this one, it's, uh, The Fallout of David's Sin and the Effects on Absalom. So, but this, this King David, he is a great figure of faith and power, an example to follow for, for all of us. But David had some amazingly crazy big time sins and he had some ugly skeletons in his closet, especially, uh, nearer, uh, to the end. So, his sins had heavy penalties and prices to pay. And the effects were devastating on David's family for those sins. So, um, and if we talk to Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, he would definitely agree with me that David's sins were ugly. As we know, as David took Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and then uh, got, found out she was pregnant, tried to cover it up, and real bad move, he wrote a letter, got Uriah to hand deliver it to the army commander, and the letter said this, put Uriah in the front where the fighting is the fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Uriah hand delivered that message to his commander. Um, and that that's a, that's a low blow, but... When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. But the thing David done had displeased the Lord. So do you ever think your sins are private? You know, it's uh, that it only affects you, that no, there's no lasting effects. Well, I think that's what we call the sin trap. That's what we all want to believe, but reality is it is not true. Our sins have major effects on not only us, but everyone around us and the kingdom of God. We can't cover them up. We can't say no harm, no foul. In God's eyes, there is no such thing as no harm, no foul. There is always the harm. There is always a foul. And um, David thought that he could just... You know, if he eliminated Uriah, all his problems would be over. Uh, wrong, wrong, wrong. In Second Samuel twelve seven to fifteen, uh, God sends Nathan to David to deliver him this message from God. 
You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and all Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why do you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah had born to David, and he became ill. So for David and for us, there are major consequences for sin. For David, this is the start of the consequences. His newborn child to Bathsheba has died. And that is very sad. But there are some very key points to that message that Nathan had brought to David that we will keep going back to and referring to as we go along. But as we move forward to chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, we see that Ammon, David's firstborn, had a problem himself. Uh, it's a pretty, pretty sick problem, but he was tormented over the love for his own sister, uh, as David was his father, and it was Absalom's, uh, uh, mother, who is, they are all family, and David has the most complicated family tree. If you look at that in Second Samuel, uh, you'll see that too. But uh, Absalom's sister was Tamar, and Ammon was obsessed with her. He had major lust and major obsession for his own sister, to the point that he was sick about it. Uh, so Ammon recruited Jonadab, the son of David's brother, to help him come up with a plan to trap Tamar to get her to sleep with Ammon. And the, the plan they came up was uh, like this in 2 Samuel 13, 5. Lie down in your bed, Jonadab told him, and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. That... Uh, that's a creepy plan, and there's no other way of saying that. It's just creepy. But um, Ammon went ahead with this plan and told David, uh, pretended to be sick and called, and David must have just thought, well, just his sister can help take him, take care of him. And he, David, okayed it and sent for Tamar. But as we pick it up in verse 10, Ammon has Tamar bring him the food into the chamber and but when she, when she came near to eat he took a hold of her and 
said to her, Come and lie with me, sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. After this, in verse 15, it says, Ammon hated her with great hatred. And he told her to get out of the room, and he totally flipped. Um, and Tamar left, ripping her robe that she was wearing that signified that she was a virgin. Uh, and she tore that, put the ashes on her forehead, and left crying. And... um This is where Absalom sees her. And he says in verse 20, Has Ammon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of this, of these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke neither to Ammon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Ammon because he violated his sister. Now, did you notice David's response to this? David is the king. He has to uphold the law. His response was completely unacceptable. The Levitical law in Leviticus 20.17 makes it very clear that Ammon should have been put to death for that sin, for that action. So why did David not take action? on his son for sleeping with his own daughter. Well, I would argue that it's because Ammon was his firstborn. Ammon was in line to be the king. If he executes Ammon or excommunicates him, then he would not be king. The line for the kingship would be disrupted and that would be a problem for David. Another argument to be had, you know, it could be both these things to be true, is that David also knew that his crimes that he committed with Bathsheba and Uriah were also punishable by death. So he was caught in a, hypo- a circle of hypocrisy. If he takes action on Ammon, he would have to take action on himself. And he was not willing to do that. And David actually had two uh, crimes he committed that would have been capital punishment, uh, taking Uriah's wife and then orchestrating the murder of Uriah. So he is not making things good for himself here. So he does not take action on Ammon. And he grows an extreme bitterness in Absalom. As time goes forward, Two full years later, Absalom is still enraged with bitterness and anger, and he, but it's secret. And he has sheep shears at Baal Hazar, and he gathers his brothers, and he tries to gather King David and all the brothers to go with him to do the sheep shears. And David's like, no, like, we're just going to be a burden to you. We don't all need to go, but Absalom pushed, well, send him on with me. 
and the other brothers, come on, let, let me have my brothers with me. Let's do this together. Finally, David caves in. Meanwhile, David does not realize that Absalom had a plan. Absalom told his servants that when Ammon was married with, with wine, that they were to find him on that signal and strike Ammon down. And that is what happened. They, uh, and after that happened, they fled the servants and the brothers went back to Jerusalem, Israel and Absalom flew to Geshar and, um, Day after day, it says that David mourned for his son, Absalom. Um, so David has now lost his son through Bathsheba. He has lost his son, Ammon, through the murder now that was committed. And he's lost Absalom to being now a convict on the run. And... um so things are not getting better for David and nor his family. But Joab, the commander of his army, knew that David longed to see Absalom again. And after three years, he developed his own plan. And if, if there's one thing I've seen through this uh, historical narrative, is there's a lot of scheming constantly going on. It's always not outright in your face truth, it's behind back doors scheming and that gets people in trouble. Just putting that out there. Um, so he gets, Joab says, well, uh, my turn to come up with a scheme. Everyone else had their turn. So I am going to get the woman of Tekoa to come and I'm going to put words in her mouth. I'm going to get her to um, tell her, to tell the king the story I've been fabricating to convince the king to let Absalom come home. And what he's, what she says to him goes along the lines of this. It is, uh, the, the, the woman says, I am a widow. She said, my husband is dead. I had two sons. Two of them got in a fight in the field. And there was no one around to stop them. One struck the other and killed him. The whole family ganged up against me and, and demanded, hand over his murderer so we can kill him for the life of his brother he murdered. They want to wipe out their air and snuff out the one spark of life left in me. And then there would be nothing left on my, of my husband, not so much as a name on the face of the earth. Now the king... I've dared to come, sorry. So now I've dared to come to the king, my master. About all this, they're making my life miserable. I am afraid, I said to myself. I'll go to the king. Maybe he'll do something. When the king hears what's going on, he'll step in and rescue me from the abuse of the man who would get rid of me and my son and God's inheritance, the works. As your handmaid, I decided ahead of time the word of my master, the king, will be the last word in this. For my master is like an angel of God in discerning good and evil. God be with you. I'll take responsibility for what happens, the woman said. I want to, um, sorry, I don't want to compromise the king and his reputation. 
Bring the man who has been harassing you, the king, the king continued. I'll see to it that he doesn't bother you anymore. Let the king invoke the name of God, said the woman. So this self-styled vigilant, uh, vigilante won't ruin everything and say nothing of killing my son. As surely as God lives, he said, not so much of as a hair on your son's head will be lost. Then she asked, here's the key. May I ask one more thing to my master, the king, she said. Now he said, go ahead. Then why, said the woman, have you done this very thing against God's own people? In this verdict, the king convicts himself by not bringing home his exiled son. We all die sometime. Water spilled on the ground cannot be gathered up again. But God doesn't take away life. He works out ways to get the exiled back. And so David comes to realization that he's got to reach out to Absalom and bring him home and not banish him from the kingdom. But as he does this, he does this again, he makes a mistake. He brings Absalom back. But Absalom is in Jerusalem for two years and he still has not been welcomed into the presence of his father, into the courts, into the family. He is living on his own, off to the side, and David wanted it that way. That uh, He was there, but not seen, not heard. He was on the sides, on the outs. So again, Absalom builds bitterness. He, The bitterness is just growing in him to the point that he was trying to get a hold of Joab, who was his neighbor, and had the neighboring field and to get in touch with the king. And Joab would not come see him. So Absalom sent jo- uh, his servants to set Joab's fields on fire. And finally, Joab gets the message and comes to see Absalom and says, what, what's going on here? Why, why did you set my fields on fire? And he said, I was happy in Gashar. You brought me back here, but I can't figure out why. I have nothing here. I had stuff there. I was happy. You bring me here. I'm out of the presence of the king. I'm not in his courts. I've got nothing. Why am I here? He says, I'd rather pay for what I've done and take the chance of being before the king and being executed for my crime than just living here on the outs. So Joab brings him to David and David finally welcomes him in. He doesn't, he does not execute Absalom, but he welcomes him back and but at this point it appears it was just too late too little too late absalom did not take long to make himself at home it says that he gathered a chariot and 50 men to run in front of him he set himself up at the gate as a judge and he started to win the hearts of the people of israel and by his judgments and by um being a in in the in their vision in prominence so after a short time or sorry at the end of the four years uh absalom comes to david and asks for his blessing to go to hebron to pay a vow and um we're in second uh, samuel 15 if, uh, in verse 10 but so but David did not realize that Absalom, again, had sneaky backdoor plans. And he had told the people of Israel um, to go, his secret messengers, to go throughout Israel and say, 
As soon as you hear the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. After this had happened, a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men have gone after Absalom. Then David said to his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else we will have no escape from Absalom. Quickly go, lest we get overtaken and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. At this point, I got to believe that Nathan's words to David have to be going through his head. Everything Nathan told David has happened. Exactly as Nathan said it from the Lord. And this is, again, in line with that. Nathan told him, Therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Uh, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house. Now, that's Absalom. David's son Ammon is dead. Tamar was raped. Absalom stole the kingdom. And now David is fleeing. I think this is a pretty good time for reflection. To put the... Put the brakes on to stop the the bleeding, so to say, and to just get things right. But David, he the first thing he had to do was organize his people who were with him. And after he was done that, in in chapter 16, verse 30 to 37, it says that he went up the Mount of Olives weeping, barefoot, head covered, and and all the people behind him who were with him did this did likewise and as they were going up to the place of worship uh he was told that his former council his uh, ideas man uh Athopel was among the conspirator conspirators with Absalom and David says, O Lord, please turn the council of Athapel into foolishness. And as they are coming to the summit where God was worshipped, it says, Behold, Hashai, the archite, came to him and met him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David said to him, If you go on with me, you're going to be a burden. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I've been your father's servant in times past. So now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the council of Athapel. So David is taking this opportunity to to hopefully insert Hashai, probably brutalize that name, but that's okay, and uh, into, into into Absalom's inner circle. You have to believe that Hashai had some power in the kingdom prior, had some uh, has respect following him, and David knew exactly how to get him into that inner circle. In um, by by getting him to assert that Absalom had the right to be the king, that he had a legitimate claim. And that is what happened. And he, David sends Hashai back to Jerusalem and 
sets up that he would have messengers to report back to David what is happening in Jerusalem and hope that Hashai can influence Absalom into David's favor and that Athapel would counsel would be considered foolishness. So there's two important points to come from this little section. Um, David is paying some very heavy prices for his sin, but he has not um, himself shown anger towards God um, or given up on God. He's kind of taken it like a man and he was going up the Mount of Olives to the place of worship. Um, I would have to imagine that it was to worship, but although that is not stated, it, I believe it's implied. Um, second point is that God delivered David an opportunity to turn the tide. And um, so God, through all the, the hard stuff God is allowing to happen because of David's sin, God also provides a way out. And that is important. So Athapel, um, when he gave Absalom the counsel on how to deal with David and his followers, it was said of him that his advice was as if one consulted the word of God. But it's interesting to note that even after that is said on what his advice was, in chapter 17, Absalom calls in Hashai. Now, Athapel's counsel was this. In 17, 1 to 14, let me choose 12,000 men and I will rise to, and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he was weary and discouraged. I will throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king. I will bring back all the people to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You will seek uh, the life. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. But then we look forward into uh, 17.5.5. It says, Absalom calls Hashai to let us hear what he has to say. Hashai came to Absalom and said to him, Thus Ashapel has spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Hashai says to Absalom, This time the council of Athapel has given is not good. Hashai said, You know that your father and all his men are mighty men, and they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. As you, as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man whose heart is like a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him will be, who are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Bathsheba, Abir Sheba, as the sands of the sea for multitude and that you go into battle in person. 
so that you, you uh, sorry, so we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him all the men, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and will drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is found. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Ashai the architect is better than the counsel of Athapel. For the Lord has ordained the defeat, or sorry, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Athapel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Did you see the difference in the plan? Athapel's was better. Absolutely. Keep the king back. Send the army forward. Take him by surprise. Don't give him any time to plan, to get any any hope, any chance. Uh, the messengers would have never had time to get there ahead of the army. It, his plan was far superior, but God inserted Hashai there and God made sure that he would defeat the good counsel of Athapel. Hashai's counsel puts Absalom on the war field in harm's way. I think Hashai played on the ego of Absalom instead of Athapai, Athapel uh, taking control and going out with the 12,000 men. Um, he said, you know, you can go out there and you can be in control. You can do it. And you can chase down your father. And and he went for it. And you have to believe that some ego had something to do with that, um, accepting that plan. Um, but because David had the time, uh, that made all the difference to him. The, the messengers, the spies, got their messages to David and... Um, he uh, he was able to uh, divide his army up into thirds and can put commanders over his army, his people he had, and he was able uh, to get ready. But he gave the, his army one command. He said in chapter 18, he said, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Like a father, he still... Had a heart for his son. His son was seeking to kill him, to throw him over, to take over the kingship. He still had a heart for his son. I think also some of that has to do that he was taking responsibility for what Absalom became. David must have pieced together that his failures, his sins had an effect on Absalom, that he has dropped the ball and that his curse because of his sin with Uriah and Bathsheba brought all this calamity to his household, as Nathan told him before any of this started. Now, as the battle is fought, um, it says that 20,000 men went down in that battle, and that the the forest took more men than the sword. (laughs) So they must have been fighting in some pretty nasty forest. But um, as Absalom was spotted during the battle, he took off on his mule and he got hung up in an oak tree. It says that he was suspended between heaven and earth. And 
the mule kept on running and Absalom was hanging in the tree. One of the army men spotted him and uh, says to Joab, Behold, I, I saw Absalom hanging in the oak. And Joab says to him, What, you saw him? And why did you not strike him to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10,000, or sorry, 10 pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt my hand, the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in hearing the king's command, uh, uh, you and Ashabai and Atai, for the sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I dealt treacherously against his life, there'd be nothing hidden from the king. So he was listening to the king's command and Joab said, I've got no time for this. Joab went ahead and grabbed three uh, javelins and jammed them into the heart of Absalom. And he took care of business. But um, at the end of the day, this is a major, this is just a tragedy. If this was a movie, this would be labeled a tragedy. Um, no one wins. <laughs> Everyone loses. No one wins when sin is involved. Sin, it's a lose-lose situation. So Joab blows the trumpet. The troops come back. And they threw Absalom into a great pit and covered him with rocks. These are sad events. These are sad times. Um, as I said before, David's lust to Bathsheba cost him so much. His infant child, his firstborn, his thirdborn, his daughter was raped. He got the kingdom taken from him. 20,000 men died. And uh, the kingdom is in turmoil. Um, there's no do-overs. You sin, there's no do-over. But when you sin, I think that God gives you a way out. And I think, I, I, by just studying this and reading this, was Nathan's message to, to David. David, he, he was told everything that was going to happen. So at what point does God's knowledge and sovereignty of what's going to happen um, especially when you're told about it, as David was. You got to imagine, because we know we have free will in God. At what point could this have stopped? If you keep trying to bury and hide the sin, the answer is never, never get stopped. If you deal with it, and if he had taken the action should have, would things have been different? In this particular situation, I'm not sure. I, I think that there is chance to change, that there is chance that he could have, um, that he could have altered, that he could have come clean, fessed up, and changed the course. Now, what are we to learn from Absalom, from David, from this? 
I think for us, there's always a chance to change, to turn. The ugly doesn't have to get uglier. The hole doesn't have to get deeper. The sin doesn't need to entrap us. We have Jesus. We have victory. We have the ability and the power to change, to make right choices today and always. And because you made a bad choice yesterday does not mean you continue to make bad choices today. And as a, as a human, as a Christian, as a person, I know that I've had bad things from my past that have happened to me. I don't have to allow that to affect me and change me and live by that. I'm saved by God's grace. David, believing God the same way. And it all comes down to choice. You're going to choose to continue on in sin or you're going to choose to give God glory and turn from sin and and just and stop it in its tracks. As a church, I'd like to challenge us. We're in a COVID-19 lockdown. Um, you know, unless you're like me and actually have to work more hours than ever before, um, most of the world is slowed down. And even uh, for for myself, this is an opportunity to to reassess, readdress, and see where is the church going? Where is my spiritual faith? Where is personally going? What can change? What needs to change? And what better opportunity to make change, to assess and see as everything has stopped? You know, and um, I just pray, my prayer is that we come back from all this stronger, that God is doing this for a reason. Let's find out why. Let's go ahead and find out why. And um, as always, may God have the glory. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.